Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Father, I thank you for these friends. I thank you for the fact that you have brought us together for such a time as this. And Father, in a world that's asking a lot of questions, for the world that's angry about a lot of problems, for the world that's confused about a lot of issues, Father, we are here to be light in this world. We are here to be salt in the city. Father, we're here to be on mission to, uh, to proclaim Christ, to declare him, and to demonstrate his love to the world and to those around us. Father, help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, Father, we pray it through Christ, and it's for his glory. Amen. We started our Seeking Things Above series to really refocus at the beginning of the year on seeking the Lord. What does it look like for us to run after him, to chase after him, and his vision for our lives in the new year? And we started by talking about our personal discipleship plans, kind of looking back at how we'd walked with the Lord in the year past and looking forward to how we want to walk with him individually over the next year. And then we kind of redirected that and said, how does it look, what does it look like for us as a church? What's our vision to engage our city and engage our world with the love of Christ and with, with his truth? And so we wrestled with some of just the, the interactions and the, the things we're seeing within our culture because our culture is pulling us in multiple directions. And we've got this kind of tug of war and battle that's happening, but our faith intersects the world and invites us to engage it with the love of Christ. And so we've spent the last couple of weeks looking at some of those intersections between Christianity and culture and some of our vision. So today we wanna close our series out with really a look at how we are each called to redemptively engage our world individually and how that together we corporately make an impact in our city. Uh, So what does it look like for us to be ambassadors of Christ in Edmond, Oklahoma in 2021? And we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven, this week, I spent some time praying, just asking the Lord. I landed on this passage and just thought, and honestly, my heart was just stirred for Christ and so grateful for him and just blown away again by the way in which Jesus interacts with the world around him. And there's something about it that's just captivating. There's something about Jesus and the way he lived and the way he spoke and the truth he taught that's compelling. And I was just drawn to that again. And it's amazing to me, as many times as I've read through the gospels, it still pops off the page and jumps to life because of who Christ is and because of the truth that God has given us in his word. So Luke chapter seven, we're gonna look at at the life of Jesus and specifically how he engaged his world. And we're gonna see what we can learn from him and from his methods and as far as how we are then to go about that. So if you got your own Bibles and while you're turning there, let me tell you kind of, just the, the way we're gonna begin this, uh, this kind of looking in at life of Jesus. You ever think Jesus has a sense of humor? I think a lot of times we get this idea of Jesus and he's like this like Photoshopped white dude that has a perfect beard and has a flowing robe and has a lamb on his shoulders and everything's got like this soft glow about it. And uh, we, we kind of eliminate all the earthiness of Jesus. But I mean, when I read the gospels, when I get in and look at this and Jesus is just a, he's a, he's a guy like one of us. 
He's, he's someone who very much is alive. And I think the passage we're gonna look at today is, I think he's got his tongue firmly planted in cheek and he's kind of poking a little bit and having some fun with it. And I think he's got, a, he's got a sense of humor that shows up. In fact, these little verses, I've never heard anyone preach on these, which is interesting. But as I was looking at them, they just kind of jumped at me this week. And I thought, it, it, it was, as I studied one guy, Daryl Bach, called this the parable of the brats. Uh, which I thought was really funny. So look at me at verse 31. Jesus says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating and no bread and drinking no wine. And you said, he has a demon. And the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Oh, it's kind of a funny little thing that Jesus says here. And it, it's, uh, I think, ironic. I think it's intended to be that. And Jesus says this generation, the generation that he's communicating with, is engaged in child's play. Uh, have you ever watched a group of kids play and just as they, as they circle up on a playground and they're playing a game and it doesn't take very long, like recess is not that long of a time, but almost any recess on any playground in America I think you could watch a group of kids and there's gonna be a group of kids that begin playing a game. Then there's gonna be a group of kids that get offended by the kids that are playing the game because they're not playing it the way they want them to play it. Now you got two groups. Those are on the sidelines that are whining and saying, well, you didn't play the game the right way. And the other group over here is saying, oh, stop bellyache and just come play with us. And you get this kind of childlike bickering and arguing and fighting that's going on. This kind of nana nana boo boo, start calling to the names, things happening. Jesus says, this generation, he says, you look like that. You look like these little kids that are fighting on the playground, that are bickering over all these things. What's his point? See, God's plan isn't going according to their demands and their expectations. So he says, you're just refusing to play along. It's pretty fascinating the way Jesus understands what's happening in his world. He says, look, you had an idea of how you thought the world was supposed to work. You had an idea of the way God was supposed to work in this. And as soon as it didn't go your way, you stepped off to the side and said, I'm not gonna play anymore. Like kids on a playground. Now, it's a pretty funny description of, a, of an entire generation, isn't it? It's also pretty scathing. Like it's also kind of an affront when Jesus says, look, you're like a little kid who can't get along in a playground. You didn't get your way and you stomped off and pouted and threw a little fit over in the corner because you didn't, everything didn't work the way you wanted it to. He says, you don't want God. You want to be like God. You don't want to see God work. You want to control God. And you know, the example he gives. He talks about John the Baptist and himself. John the Baptist came first as the one who was a forerunner of Jesus. Then Jesus came. He says, John the Baptist came. And if you know anything about John the Baptist, man, the dude wore camel's hair coats and had a big leather belt and he ate locusts and honey and stayed out in the wilderness and demanded that everyone repent and get baptized and was kind of this somber dirge-like, Jesus says. He kind of came with a message, kind of like a funeral ceremony and a dirge and you didn't want to play along with him. Then Jesus said, then I came along and I said, well, because I am here, this is a good day. This is a day to celebrate. So Jesus brought this joyful celebration. It says he was eating and drinking and hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and everyone got even more upset at Jesus. Jesus was like, well, you're not happy either way. You're not happy when we gave you a somber message and now you're not happy when we gave you a joyful message. You just want everything on your terms. You don't want to admit and surrender to God on his own terms. It's fascinating that Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways, right? You people are never gonna be happy. Uh, you're just not satisfied with whatever God is doing in the world. 
And so you're going to continue to demand that things happen in your own time. Now, let me tell you why I think these verses are important for us today. Uh, we live in a time that some people have called the most offended time in human history. We've been talking about our culture and the world in which we live in and the world in which we live in says, never trust an authority outside of you. Never trust a truth outside of you. Never trust anyone that would impose something upon you, but you should from within determine your own truth. You should from within express yourself and the world's job is to affirm whoever it is that you are. And in the midst of that, I think, uh, I think it's important for us to wrestle with the truth of these verses. See, it's, uh, we've been talking a lot the last couple of weeks about how it is that we're to engage our culture. One of the things we said is we wanna be a place that wrestles with our culture on its, on its, on, on its terms, that as missionaries, we wanna understand what's happening in our world. We wanna be able to move towards them. We wanna understand the questions they're asking and we wanna approach them with honest answers and we wanna be able to, to, to dialogue with our world because compassion, I think, for uh, compassion demands that we seek to engage our world with love of Christ. So it's an important thing for us to do. But we also need to understand that our generation is not the first that's ever resisted the ways of God. That as much as our world feels complex right now, as much as things feel like they're hanging in the balance, as much as it feels like our country could go one way or the other, or maybe has already gone off the cliff and is descending into a depth that we don't like and a direction that we don't like, we need to understand that the truth of God's word and what Jesus is saying is in his generation, People didn't want to play along with the ways of God. They demanded that God respond to them in their terms and in their ways as well. And I think that's important for us as we understand that, that part of our call as a church is to remind people of the truth. We live in a generation that some have called the most offended ever. That no matter what anyone says, if, they don't, if you don't just affirm and agree with, with what anyone individually thinks, that somehow you've done something offensive towards them. And yet Jesus says to his generation, and you didn't, wanna, you didn't wanna listen to anything that I had to say. Now, as we think about that, I think for some of us, the world around us feels threatening right now. I think we're full of anxiety, we're full of worry. There's many people when you look at the church that are angry because they feel like that something's been pulled out of their fingers and pried away from them and, and going in a negative direction. And I think that causes a lot of us to react in some unhealthy ways. And here's what I, want, here's what I know. There, there certainly are things to be concerned about in our world, right? Like you look at the moral trajectory of our world, you look at the decisions that are making, you look at the underlying philosophies that are happening, you look at the world forces and the direction that they're pushing us. And those things are not encouraging. There are certainly things to be concerned about, but here's what I wanna say to us. We need to remember that as we engage the world that the Lord is by our side to strengthen us. We need to remember that the Lord plus no one else is an army stronger than any other. We need to remember that God's truth is going to stand and will never fall. We need to remember that, that Jesus is still seated at the right hand of the Father, victorious, and he's sent his people and he's called his people and he's sent his spirit to empower his people and he's left us here to proclaim him to the world and to invite them to come and know him. And so as we think about this, we need to remember that, as Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That in the end, wisdom wins out. In the end, wisdom is gonna be proven. Wisdom is gonna be recognized and justified by all those who are not children of the world, who, but children of the wisdom of Christ are gonna win out in the end. 
We're not trying to win a popularity contest on a playground. And we're trusting the Lord and the kingdom to come. And so I think that's good news for us. And friends, every generation fights against the way of the Lord. So I wanna encourage us today, don't lose heart. Don't despair. Don't give up hope. Don't, uh, don't stop doing, uh, don't become weary and stop doing good. But let's continue to be those who keep engaging, keep inviting, keep saying to our city, come and see the truth and beauty that Christ wants to bring. And so we stay the course. So friends, as we look at this, my question for us today is what are you and I supposed to do as we live for Christ in our generation? So we've got, we've got a few short years, a few decades in which to live for Christ here in this city, here in this time, here in this place. What is it that we're to be about? What is it we're called to do? Well, several years ago, Francis Schaeffer was preaching a message uh, to a world evangelization conference. So a conference that's built on how do we evangelize the world? And he made an interesting statement as he did. He said, the answer isn't just evangelism. Now, it feels sacrilegious to say that, right? right? I mean, like we need to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We're called to that. We know we're called to do that. But he said that it's not just evangelism, that somehow it's gotta be a bigger evangelistic message that we have to have. See, evangelism can seem canned and mechanical. It can seem like a sales pitch. Like I'm gonna sit down and try to sell you on a certain bit of information. If I get you to check the box at the end of it, then I'm good. And so that was what Schaefer was seeing in his day. And I think it's gotten worse in our day because part of what we did is we took that kind of marketing message, mechanical approach, and we, we, we just made it bigger. And so we, in our day, have taken, uh, have kind of outsourced the, the responsibility to share our faith to experts. And they've perfected that canned sales pitch and brought it into arenas and they put hype and celebrity and, uh, and all kinds of energy into it. And maybe throwing a Bible verse here and there, but it still feels like a sales pitch, complete with a pressure deal to close the, try to close the, the, the deal at the end. And in that, I think it makes me wonder, or it's no wonder that people in our city and in our world have a hard time connecting the dots between that and the Jesus that they, that they might read about here in Luke 7. And so for us, I think what, um, what Schaefer did, I think he's right, is we need a more holistic approach to proclaiming and declaring and demonstrating the love of God to our world. And I'm not saying we need to stop telling people about Jesus, I'm just saying there's ways in which we need to tell him and there's people that we need to become as we tell him. And those things together become compelling and not just compelling, but even captivating. They're winsome to the world around us when we live that way. And so Schaefer went on to say, there's two things we need to do. That the, the message, our message to the world needs to be full of truth and beauty. Truth is sound doctrine and it's honest question, answers to honest questions. We've been talking a lot about that the last couple of weeks. So I'm not gonna talk more about that. You can go back and listen to the last two messages, but we need to be people who know what we believe. And we need to be people who are willing to engage the world and try to honestly answer the questions that they're asking. And that speaks to the truth of God's word. We also need to be a people of beauty. Schaefer would go on to say there's two realities that we need. One is true spirituality. There must be something real of the work of Christ, something real in Christ bearing his fruit through me, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more ugly in all the world, nothing which turns people aside more than dead religion. There has to be something alive in us that's beautiful to the world. It can't just be a message and a bill of goods we're trying to sell them. We need to present truth, but it needs to be enlivened by the presence of Christ and him doing something in us so that there's something real happening. Then he goes on to says, the, the next thing he says is it needs to be the beauty, not just of Christ's presence, but the beauty of human relationships. 
True Christianity, Schaefer said, produces beauty as well as truth. If we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we're destroying the truth we proclaim. It's a strong statement, isn't it? See, one of the reasons the world turns a deaf ear to us is because we don't look like Jesus. We don't look like the life of Jesus is, is doing anything in us. And we don't have the beauty of the relationships that Christ came to bring us. And so he says, we need truth. We also need beauty. So friends, where did Schaefer get such an idea? I think it's from the Bible. And actually, I think we're gonna, we can see that here, right here in Luke 7. So I wanna go back to the beginning of Luke 7 and we're gonna kind of tease this out and, and see kind of where this idea might be biblically grounded. But what I want us to understand is if we're gonna live for Christ in our generation, we have to become a people of truth and beauty. That that's the call, that's the thing we're invited up into. And so let's go back and look at, um, at, at chapter seven, verse one. We're not gonna get to do a, kind of a deep dive here. We're gonna, this is gonna be like a drone flyover. You're gonna see the big picture, but we don't get to do, uh, kind of get down in the weeds of it all. But I think that'll be helpful for us as we understand what God's calling us to do to look like Christ in our city. So verse one says, after Jesus had finished all these things, saying all these things, so that's actually the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus finished preaching and teaching all those things. It says uh, that in the hearing of the people, he came to Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And he was highly valued by this man. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal the servant. And when they had come to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, this man is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion's friend sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man who is set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at this man. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that the servant was now well. So Jesus, after his teaching, is going throughout the city and this man has a servant who's ill and he hears about Jesus and hears what Jesus has been doing and he sends an entourage to go to Jesus and tell them that he's got the servant who's sick and ask him if he would come and heal this, uh, this man. That's it, he's a centurion, which means he's a soldier in Herod's army who commands about 100 men. And so this is a powerful man who's got a lot of uh, people in his in his. Uh, in his uh, command. And in that, he's probably not a Jewish man. He's probably a man, uh, not Roman, because Romans didn't fill that role until, I guess, 44 AD. And so after Jesus. So uh, this is probably a man who was not Jewish, but he was definitely a Gentile. So he's not connected with the Jewish religion. But you notice who he sends to go to Jesus. He sends elders of his city who are the Jews. So this is a man who has some cross-cultural connection. And even though he's not a Jew, he, he probably was either, he may have been a proselyte converted to Judaism, or he may have been what the Bible calls a God-fearer, who, someone who fears God, but maybe hasn't fully embraced everything of, of the of Judaistic faith yet. And so he's interacting with these people, but you notice what they come. And it's fascinating that he sends these Jewish leaders to Jesus and it says they plead with Jesus on his behalf. 
So they're making this case. They're arguing and saying, man, this guy loves our people. He, he's been kind to us. He actually helped fund our synagogue and build us a building. They had a home campaign and they needed a church home and they were looking for one. So this guy helped fund that. And they're like, dude, this guy stepped up and stepped into the gap and helped us do that. But it ultimately raises a question because uh, throughout this whole section, there's this kind of interracial Thing that's going on. You have Jesus and the Jews and the elders of the Jews that are being sent. And in an honor culture, this man was probably being, making a really wise move of asking instead of himself going, trying to be respectful of Jesus and send a Jewish group. And he was also respecting the leaders of his town and the people he was serving by saying, would you go on my behalf to Jesus? So this is a man who had some sensitivity and ultimately raised the question, are, are there any ethnic or racial distinctions in Jesus' ministry? No, in fact, Jesus is gonna say of this guy, he has greater faith than anyone in Israel, which is good news for us. It means that Jesus moves across racial and social boundaries to go help this man and he receives him and faith is found even outside the people of Israel. Now, Jesus, Jesus is going to him. You notice the second group comes out. And so probably what happens is uh, they go and tell Jesus about it. Jesus says, okay, I'll come and I'll move that way. They probably sent a runner back home and as a runner got there and told the man, hey, Jesus is coming. He sends a second group out to Jesus. And that second group says, hey, he says, you don't even have to come all the way to the house. He doesn't feel worthy to have you in his home. Another show of, of honor and respect for Christ. And in that, uh, what you see is this, uh, this kind of, this humility of this man. And his humility is pretty remarkable when you think of a guy who's a powerful leader in a city to have this kind of humility. You notice there's three opinions that are shown about this guy in this passage. The first is the opinion of the Jewish leaders. They said, what? He is worthy to have you do this for him. Then there's the opinion of the man. What's he say about himself? I'm not worthy of having you come. And then there's the opinion of Jesus. And what's Jesus say? I've seen faith like no one and no one else as great as the faith of this man. This is, friends, it's always a good plan to let others call you worthy and not call yourself worthy. But we live in a world that so often turns that around. Uh, but it's always a good plan. Proverbs says, in fact, it's wise not to seek the head of the table, but to seat yourself at the other end and be invited up because it's better to be invited up to the head of the table than to be sent down from the head to the backside of the table. Uh, so there's something here that I think is wise in this man that's, uh, that's appealing to this. But you notice he also, uh, he doesn't make any demands. He only makes a request. And it's not a request for himself. It's a request for someone else. Would you help this other man? But you notice he also just understands authority. It's fascinating to me. He says to Jesus, I am also under authority, meaning I understand what it's like to have an emperor, to have a ruler and to serve underneath him. And because I serve underneath him, I represent him. And I therefore also have authority. What's the connection he's making to Jesus? He says, Jesus, you clearly have authority. You speak for God. You are under the, the, the authority of God, your father. And whenever you speak your way, the, the things you say and the things you do carry authority as well because you are one who is under authority. So he says, when I say go, they go. When I say come, they come. When I say do this, they go do whatever I tell them to. What's the point that he makes connected to Jesus? He says, you don't even have to be here, but you have so much authority about who you are that you can send sickness away. If you just speak it, it has to go away. This is a man who understands the power. He understands the truth of who Jesus is, doesn't he? 
There's something remarkable about this man's faith. In fact, um, he, he understands that Jesus was sent by God and had authority over all things in life. In fact, so Jesus says, it says that Jesus marveled at this man's faith. You know, the Jesus only, it only says that Jesus marveled or kind of is in awe of something two times in all the scriptures. One in Mark, it says that Jesus marveled at this group's unbelief. Here, it's the opposite. He mar- he, he's amazed or marvels at this man's faith. Friends, which group do you wanna be in? Do you want Jesus to marvel at your unbelief or you want him to marvel at your belief and your trust in him? And Jesus turns and says to the crowd, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus' statement here is is like a billboard just screaming that faith, faith can come to anyone. Anyone can believe and that Jesus will receive the faith of anyone who simply looks to him with confidence. But this is what real faith looks like. Jesus lifts this man up and exalts him as an example to us. Now friends, in our day, the world's telling us not to have any authority outside of ourselves. It says, you shouldn't trust any institution. You shouldn't trust any organization that you should only trust what happens in here and and that life, the real life, the good life, the free life is when you can express whatever's in here and have that affirmed by everyone out there. But what we see here is this man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I understand you're under a divine authority and you speak and everyone moves and lives. And does as you, it does as you're told. What it means is we only find life and freedom through a God who's both stronger and kinder than we are. So that's the thing is, if, if, if truth comes from us, then the, the, the level of trustworthiness of that truth is only gonna be as strong as I am. And friends, surely if we look around, we know that we're not that strong. We're not as strong as we thought we were. That we all struggle to be kind. We, we struggle to live uh, with compassion, with love. We struggle to live with strength and to, to trust the things that we, the way in which we need to live. So here, as we see this, this is the heart of the Christian faith. As people of truth, we recognize the authority of God that comes. But in Luke, you notice uh, that Jesus heals this man. And then it goes on to, and another episode in verse 11, it's gonna turn and Jesus is gonna go to a little village. He's gonna go to a little village. And in this village, he sees an entourage coming, but it's a different kind of entourage. It's an entourage of a funeral. And it says, uh, that behold, a man who had died was being carried out and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer and the bear's, And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And and Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So what do we see here of Jesus? If in the last episode, we saw Jesus' authority, we saw a man speak of the truth of who Jesus was. Here we see Jesus' kindness. We see his compassion. We see that Jesus is the one who initiates, that they don't come to him, but Jesus just looks out and he sees a widow who's weeping over the loss of her only son. And Jesus is compelled. There's something internally in him that is motivated to run towards her and to try to meet her need. And so he's compelled to act in kindness to her. I love the way it says, it says, Jesus saw her. Don't you love that Jesus always has a heart for the brokenhearted? That whenever he sees those who are hurting, that his heart is compelled to act with compassion. It says he sees, he feels, and then he moves towards them. 
And there's something about that that's compelling. That the God of the universe, the one who came with authority, the one who came with, with the truth of God, the one who speaks and, and, and things, and anyone, uh, any one of the, the beings of this world, uh, sickness, death, anything he wants to do, he can do. He commands the winds, he commands the seas, uh, he commands uh, the, all the forces of this world. He can command even the demons and say, be gone, and they're gone. But the one with, who comes with such authority is also someone who's filled with great compassion. And he sees a widow who lost her only son and he moves towards her in order to care for her. Now touching the bier of the board, the bier is just a board that they would carry the dead body in. And the died, when a body died in that day, they had to wrap it really quickly and try to get it buried before sundown so they didn't wait multiple days because it would be unclean. And so they would carry it on a board and as quickly as possible, they would get that body buried in into a tomb. And so on this board that they're carrying is called the bier. It says that Jesus came up and touched the bier. And when he did, that actually would make Jesus unclean. So Jesus, who was clean, reaches out and puts his hand on something that because of someone else becomes unclean. And then through that, you notice that this man receives new life. It's interesting to me when you think about that, doesn't it sound a little familiar? That out of love for another, Jesus moves towards those who are dead and in reaching out to them, he becomes unclean so that they might have new life. This is a picture that we're meant to understand. What happens here is the dead man set up. Don't you know that was a day? Like, I mean, he sets up and he begins to speak. So it says that the dead man sits up off the board and begins to speak. Don't you want to know what he said? Like, that's what I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm like, I want to know what the dude said. He's like, hey, what's for dinner? Like, you know, maybe he set up and like, hey, why do, what's everyone gathered around? What's all the fuss about? Like, you don't know what he's thinking. You know, I'm not sure exactly how that worked. If he knew he was dead and now alive, or if he's just kind of like, you know, trying to figure the whole thing out. But don't you know that moment in this whole city marching out to go to the funeral and this dude just sits up and begins to talk? Uh, I think it had, you know, it had to be kind of a funny sort of a, a, a moment. But then you see this moment of true beauty. It says, then Jesus gave him to his mother. And moms, can you imagine? The son had died and the weeping and the wailing that you had done over that and you'd prepared that body and you'd mourned and you'd grieved and you'd given up hope. And you begin to walk and the whole city's around and you're just trying to hold it together in the midst of that moment. And then all of a sudden, this one comes, touches your son and says, young man, arise and walk and hands him back to you. Can you imagine the weeping, that those tears of sorrow became tears of joy? That song of dirge-like uh, kind of moving towards the tomb became a song of celebration. This moment of an end became a new beginning. And the people begin to be amazed. They begin to worship and say, man, surely a great prophet is among us. Meaning someone, God is at work here. God's doing something. God's somehow changing some things in a remarkable way through this man, Jesus. And so we saw Jesus' authority and truth demonstrated. Now we see the beauty of his kindness and his compassion and his love that's demonstrated. So then where does, John, where does Luke go in, in chapter seven? Because I think Luke's arranged all of these here for a reason. He's put together these episodes in the gospel of Luke in chapter seven to point us to a direction and immediately then goes to John the Baptist. You notice what it says, the disciples of John reported all these things to John 
And John, John was actually in prison at the time, so John can't come, but he's hearing these reports of all these things that Jesus is doing. He's healing the blind. He's, he's taking the deaf and allowing them to hear. He's uh, raising the dead. He's preaching good news. He's hearing these things. And so in prison, he sends a group and says, um, two of his disciples came to Jesus uh, and, or went to Jesus and said, John wants to know, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had once said to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And in that hour, Jesus healed many of the diseases and the plagues and the evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then Jesus answered them. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus begins to proclaim to John, or this entourage comes to Jesus and begins to ask, is he really the one? Now, you can see why John might be a little bit confused, right? Because the disciples, they, or the, the Jews really expected that a Messiah would come. And when the Messiah would come, that he would set up a kingdom. And so John is looking, he's going, Jesus, I don't see a political program that you rolled out. I don't see your campaign headquarters. I don't know who your cabinet is. I don't understand what is it you're doing. You've not yet revolted against the tyranny that's keeping us down. You haven't caused riots in the streets. You haven't, you haven't started some kind of a movement that looks like a kingdom I anticipated you to bring. So John the Baptist has some questions and he wants to know, how is the kingdom of God gonna take over the world if Jesus doesn't do anything that overthrows the powers and authorities of the world? And he's asking a question that makes a lot of sense. He isn't questioning Jesus, but he's, he's puzzled about Jesus' methods and his plans. Can you relate to that at all? Have you ever look around at our world and just think, well, Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> Jesus, why haven't you come back? Jesus, why... Why did you leave a feeble church that doesn't really look as glorious as, as we ought to for your sake? Why aren't you changing things more quickly? Why don't you execute your sovereignty in a way that brings about more good in the world at a faster pace? Jesus, why don't you do things the way I think you ought to do them? Why do you allow things to go unchecked that need to be stopped? I know you're against these things. Why have you not shut them down? And since in verse 21, Jesus just leaves them waiting, right? So this entourage comes from John the Baptist and asks this question, are you the one? And it says, it says, in that hour, he healed many people. Well, that didn't go very quickly, did it? It says, he, in that hour, he healed many people of the diseases, plagues, evil spirits. On many who are blind, he bestowed sight. So he left, he left this, this entourage from John the Baptist waiting, but he also left them watching, didn't he? He says, you wait, but you watch. You watch what I do. Do you see the beauty of my kingdom? Do you see the beauty of all that I'm doing? Now go and tell John what you saw. Go and report what it is. And he alludes, Jesus does, to a series of verses from the book of Isaiah 800 years earlier. And in that, uh, Isaiah prophesied about the time, the one who would come, who would deliver his people. And in, that, in, in those verses, uh, those allusions in Isaiah, it actually, Jesus kind of alludes to those in this statement where he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. That's one section. So God is bringing about restoration to all those who are hurting. The dead are raised. God's bringing about new life for those who have lost it. And good news, it's preached to the poor, those who need it, those who lack true wealth, those who are needy. See friends, there's, 
Jesus is pointing us in a direction. He says, someday I will reverse all death and sorrow. Pain will be undone. All that is evil in the world will be reversed. And today you get a glimpse of that undoing and unwinding of all that is wrong in the world. Today you get a picture, you get a, you get a little taste of the kingdom that I'm going to bring one day. But one day, man, one day all will be undone. All will be unwound. All hurt will be reversed. And that will be a good day. So two things you see in Jesus here, right? You see his authority and you see his beauty. And you need those two things together to be a compelling voice in the world. You need to declare the truth of God and you need to demonstrate the love of God. And you have to have both to have a full-fledged message. It's interesting to me that in the Great Commission where Jesus says, go and make disciples, he starts that by saying, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Because I'm Lord over all, because I'm the one who bears authority, therefore go and make people who look like me and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What are the things he commanded you? Well, love your neighbor. What he's saying is, because I have all authority, you should go and make people who live a beautiful life because they look like me. Friends, Christ still leaves people waiting for an answer, doesn't he? Like he doesn't resolve it all, just like he did John the Baptist, where he said, you wait, but you watch. Watch the world. Listen to the message that's being preached and respond to that. And he invites us to do so as well. Now, here's the interesting thing for me. Jesus ends this with a statement. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, Jesus doesn't kowtow to the demands of the people around him. Jesus invites them, wait, watch and listen. Look and listen to the message that I have. But blessed is the one who's not offended by me. G. Campbell Morgan says it this way. He says of this last warning, he says, Jesus was very gentle, very beautiful, but it's definitely a warning. He was saying, in effect, John, if you can't understand my method, I ask you to trust me. Trust me when you're unable to see why I'm doing what I'm doing or why I'm not doing what you think I ought to be doing. All I ask is that you follow and trust. See, trust me even if you don't understand. Trust me with the truth and beauty you do see, but trust me with even that which you don't fully understand. He goes on to say, and see, I think, I think when we minimize the mystery of Christ, we lose some of what is good and hopeful in him. Morgan goes on to say, do not measure the method of Christ by the wisdom of the world. The method of Christ remains an enigma to men. It's always been so. We are never more hindered Christ than when we try to adapt the methods of worldly policy and worldly cleverness and carrying on of his enterprises. So when we try to, when we try to do Jesus stuff the way the world's operating, we always wreak havoc on things. We always make a bigger mess. And you remember in Ferris Bueller's day off, they take off and they drive the Ferrari and, and they have a great day and they come back in and they go, okay, at the end of the day, what we're gonna do is we're just gonna put it down and we're just gonna reverse everything. We're gonna turn the wheels back and we'll reverse everything so that the dad doesn't know how many miles were lost off the thing. And uh, what they see is that their methods didn't really work, didn't they? And so none, none of the miles went off the car, which then just did what? It increased their angst. And then he starts getting angry and he starts kicking the car and the car eventually goes off and he destroys the entire Ferrari and makes a total mess of the entire deal. He wrecks it all. See, that's what we do whenever we try to do things our own way. 
Whenever we don't trust the way of the Lord, when we try to unwind things, we end up making a bigger mess of stuff. And so, friends, as we think about who we're called to be, and we're not gonna come with methods of media and marketing and creating movements and things that we can't, that we can't do and trying to operate in the methods of the world. We can't operate through politics and anger and, uh, and lashing out. When, when the, the thing that's grieved me the most in the last year has been to see the church not live out the, the beauty and the truth of Jesus. Because we've adopted the methodology of the world. And anytime we operate in the methods of men, we lose out on the beauty and the truth of Christ and the wisdom that he comes to bring. So friends, what are we called to do? We need to learn to live the life of Christ so that we become a people of beauty and truth. It's as simple as that. That's what we're called to be. We're to keep our heads down. I love that when Jesus is called to answer this question, he says, excuse me just a minute, I need to go serve some people. See, we need, to, we need to keep our heads down. We need to go about the, go about the work of loving one another, of serving our, our neighbors, of caring for those around us, of trying to meet the needs of our city. We need to keep our heads down and just love and serve. Jesus looked at the woman and he, was, and he initiated with her. She didn't ask for help, but he just said, I see a need, I wanna go try to meet it. And he came alongside this widow and raised her son because he cared about her and was moved with compassion. And we need to be people like that that we look at the needs of our city and we're moved with compassion to initiate for their good freely, just surely out of the kindness and love in our hearts because we look like Christ. When we do that, we'll be something compelling and captivating to our world. We also need to be people of truth. You notice he says they preach the good news. When we bring people into right relationship with, Christ, with the Lord, we're carrying on Christ's work. So we need to be people who preach the truth of the gospel, we need to be people who, who bring the beauty of gospel people. We look like Christ in the way in which we live. C.S. Lewis says this as we end. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christs. If they, if we, they are not doing that, all the cathedral, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself was simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Friends, this is why we're here. We're here to, to draw people to Jesus and we're here to disciple them to become more like him. And that's the mission of a church. That's what we're about. And we do that by living as a people who are full of the life of Jesus personally and become a people who, who give truth and beauty and display it to our world. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would make us people who look like Jesus. God, would he be lifted up? Would we have a vision of who he is? Would we long and desire to be more like him? Father, would you help us to, um, to, to throw away the, the methods of men and to become people of truth and beauty who don't have it all figured out, who don't have all the answers, but who continue to run after Christ and continue to make disciples as those who have the authority of your imprint and your spirit in us but also those who are compelling love and compassion because our hearts are being changed to become more like Him. Father, we pray it in His holy name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this Redemption Sermon. 
For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media. Thank you.